Welcome, I'm Dr. Robert Groves, your host for the Groves Connection podcast. The Groves Connection brings you intimate conversations with pundits, providers, patients, leaders, and laypeople, all to help us understand a contradiction. How can our healthcare system be both magnificent and yet so deeply flawed? We're going inside healthcare to talk candidly with those who know. What they have to say may delight, surprise, frustrate, or at times even anger you. But I invite you to get curious and listen to the truth about healthcare and those who want to fix it. Maybe the answers have been there all along. We just need to make the connection. Welcome to all you connectors out there. We have a very special episode today. I visit with Dr. Robert Pearl, named one of modern healthcare's 50 most influential physician leaders. I would add that he is also among the most courageous voices for meaningful change in healthcare today. His new book entitled Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients takes an unflinching look at the cultural norms that hold us back and contribute to a system that is at once expensive, unreliable, and often prioritizes physician needs above those of the patients we took an oath to serve. Now, don't be misled. There is plenty about physician culture that is noble and good, and we've seen that during the pandemic. And the system in which we work has a role, too. The bureaucracy, the misaligned incentives, the erosion of the physician-patient relationship, to name a few. We can't ignore those. And Dr. Pearl covers it all in his book. But in telling the truth about physician culture, he is offering us the opportunity to heal. And Dr. Pearl knows the landscape well. He served as the CEO of the nation's largest medical group for the better part of two decades, taking the Permanente Medical Group from near bankruptcy to a thriving, high-quality medical group practice during his tenure. He currently serves as clinical professor of plastic and reconstructive surgery at Stanford, where he also has a faculty appointment at the business school. He's also a podcaster, including his podcast, Fixing Healthcare, and Coronavirus, The Truth. He's been featured on CBS, CNBC, NPR, Time, USA Today, and the Bloomberg News. He has published extensively in the medical literature and has served on the Bipartisan Congressional Task Force and has, by invitation, addressed the Commonwealth Club, the National Quality Forum, the National Committee for Quality Improvement, and the World Healthcare Congress. And the list goes on, and we don't have time to cover everything that Dr. Pearl has done here. But I think you can see now why this is a very special guest. So, are you ready to connect? Yeah. 
Robbie Pearl. Welcome to the Groves Connection. Thank you so much. It is my privilege and my pleasure to be here today. You are a bit of a legend now, uh, in, at least in my mind, and I think that's true for so many other people. Uh, the things that you've done in your life, the accomplishments, uh, gosh, uh, two decades almost at the helm of uh, Kaiser Permanente Medical Group. Just an amazing feat. Now two books out, uh, one already a bestseller. The other one, if it's not, it's I'm sure it's well on its way. And I, I really want to highlight the fact that all of the proceeds, I think from both books, right, are, are going to Doctors Without Borders. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, that's it's a so wonderful cool. charity. And I encourage everyone to support it. Yeah, yeah, that's a great organization and, uh, and do a lot of good all over the world. Before we get too far down the road, though, I want to I learn a little bit about how you became who you are today. So take us way back to elementary school. Did you know you wanted to be a doctor in elementary? Where did you grow up? I grew up on Long Island. And no, I did not think I wanted to be a physician. I wanted to be a college professor. And in my first year... My hero, a excellent, excellent academic, was not given tenure because of his political views. Mm. As strange as it sounds, I thought I'd go into medicine because there would be no politics. <laughs> it's life and death. I mean, yeah. what are we talking about? Yeah. How can you have politics sitting there? Yeah. Uh, and I, I never worried if I wasn't good, that's, I had to accept it. But the idea that politics would dominate performance I was 17 years old. What did I know? <laughs> but I decided at that point to become a physician. I went to Yale, and then I went to Stanford for my residency, and that was the start of my entire career. Yeah, yeah. So so what kind of school did you go to for high school? Was it public, private? How, how did you get that? Public school, two blocks from my house. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. I'd walk there every morning. And the decision on Yale, did you apply to a bunch of schools? or I applied to, I don't know, maybe in terms of medical schools, I probably applied to eight and yeah, yeah. loved it. The curriculum, as you may know, is one where there's no grades and no exams. And yeah. my observation was the people here worked even harder than they would have worked anywhere. So they and did their screening up front, essentially. They get the right people in, and then they don't have to, to nanny you. I think that was like the plan, and I had a wonderful experience. Uh, tremendous professors, learned a huge amount, and my time at Stanford was equally great. Yeah, It was interesting. At that time, I became interested in global surgery, which is something that yeah. I've done about 12 trips around the globe and learned a huge amount as a consequence of that. Very fortunate to be, again, exposed to remarkable, mission-driven, purpose-oriented physicians, and those are the best mentors yeah, for people in yeah. healthcare. You know, I'm so tempted to, to just skip ahead here because there are so many points on culture that that brings up, but I'm, I'm going to stop myself for just a moment, and I want to understand a, a little bit about uh, the decision on specialty. Was, was it that that drew you into, I call it restorative plastic surgery because that's more of what you do than... Right. I focused on lip and cleft palate. And what drew me into it was this opportunity to work in other countries. It was also this wonderful experience where a child comes along yeah. who's not going to have a very good life. Yeah. And in an hour and a half of surgical time, you completely change that trajectory. Yeah. You can see in the eyes of the parents and you can look down the road and you can see a very different 
journey yeah, than yeah. would have been. And there was something about that immediacy that and just attracted it, it, me. It's purpose, right? I mean, Tremendous I, I, purpose this, and mission. This, it makes you feel like what I am doing is worthwhile in a very tangible way. It's interesting to me that, as I say, I've been on about 12 trips, and you spend usually two full weeks working 12, 14 hours a day, you eat rice and beans, the ORs are not air-conditioned, you often have GI problems being in other areas with the water supply being problematic, yeah. and you come back so full of life. It's the most amazing experience. Zero I, burnout. Zero right? <laughs> burnout. You know, when I, I became CEO, I remember Sri Lanka had a tsunami, and I heard about it. In fact, actually, that's how I first interacted with Doctors Without Borders. I said, you know, do you guys need any help? They said, oh, sure, we'd love some help. And so I sent an email out. This was, I think, the day after Christmas. People on vacation. I said, there's been a tsunami in Sri Lanka, but if anyone wants to volunteer, remember, they're not going to get paid. We'll figure out a way to get you there. We'll send you some supplies. You know, I figured I'd get three responses, two responses. And I added the fact, there may not be any food. There may not be any clean water. And there's been a civil war going on for 20 years. I had 200 people. Wow. Connect with me. You know, we sent teams down to southern part of the United States after Katrina, sent them to Haiti after an earthquake, not the current one, but the one before that. Yeah. Uh, And I I sent the physician to Liberia. By sent, I mean they volunteered. We just arranged the transportation through Doctors Without Borders. He had to have an IV going into his arm because the suit he wore to protect him against Ebola was so hot inside that he would have passed out. And he came back glowing. I mean, this <laughs> is what medicine is about, and we've lost so much of it in the United States. You know, I, but, but I think it speaks to the reservoir of goodwill and commitment that is there, ready to be tapped again. And I guess we, we just can't avoid it because this is what this conversation is about. It's about, I got to tell you, the book that you recently released, Uncaring, you got to read it. You got to listen to it. You got to read it because there are so many good things about physician culture. We just touched on one of them. And that reservoir is there waiting to be tapped again, if we can correct, as you put it in your book, the uh, the caduceus, the, uh, the, the intertwined snakes of system and culture. So walk me down the path that led to this book. How did you, how did you first think, gosh, this is something that somebody needs to say? As you said, I wrote a first book called Mistreated. While we think we're getting good health, we're usually wrong. In 2017, it was published. And it spoke about the systemic problems It described the fact that American medicine in many ways is a cottage industry reminiscent of pre-industrial England. It's paid on a piecemeal basis. We call it fee-for-service. It's fragmented. The technology we use is left over from the last century. Well, actually not. It's left over from the century before because the fax machine is the most common way we exchange information. An 1834 invention. And it's leaderless. I mean, it's not that there are not some excellent leaders, but there's no system. And you can't lead without a system. The book was published. As you said, it was a Washington Post bestseller and little happened. And then December 2019 comes. The federal government releases a report. It says that healthcare is going to go up five to six percent a year every year for the next decade. You do the math, it's compound percentages. That's 2.5 
trillion dollars for the same product we're getting. Yeah. I mean, think about that. We could use that money to help people get the care they needed to prevent chronic disease. We could use that money to address social determinants of health. We could do preschool education. There's so many ways we could do it. I waited for the medical establishment to say, this is crazy. Let's use it differently. And nothing happens. And it said to me, there's got to be something else going on. So I traveled around the country, spoke to about 100 different physicians, and I identified this called this invisible force. It's like gravity. You can't see it except by how it impacts people. But if you don't pay attention to it, you can actually get quite harmed. And this was physician culture. Yeah. As you said, it can make people heroes. We saw that in the pandemic. Yeah. Doctors, you're a critical care physician. Doctors going to the emergency room, to the critical care area, we didn't have protection for them. They had to don garbage bags when they didn't have gowns, salad lids when they didn't have masks, and yet they went 12 and 24 hours a day at time. It is an amazing culture that we've inherited from the past. But we'll talk about in a second. I'm sure there's a lot of ways it harms both doctors and patients. Yeah, you know, as I've, I've, I'm torn often between uh, uh, two poles. One, when I finished training, I mean, I, my dad is a primary care physician, was a primary care physician, and he was one of those guys who went out and hung up his shingle. He was fully autonomous. You know, he decided what his schedule was, who he saw, shared call with a few doctors. Now, this was a different time, obviously. I mean, I remember a morning report still happened at the community hospital. So all of the primary care care doctors would come in and the specialists would attend and everybody would talk about the cases that came in last night. And this is not an academic medical center. This is the way that medicine used to be. Now, they also had built-in ashtrays <laughs> at the time, so not everything was beautiful then, obviously. But I'm torn between that, uh, how do I maintain that sense of autonomy and yet become part of a system? I'm not arguing that there's any way to go back to the way things were before. I'm asking the question really about how how do we get to, to borrow terms from Dan Pink, autonomy, mastery, and purpose in medicine? How do we get there again? Because that's what made those trips overseas so va- That's why you didn't burn out. There's so much purpose there. And you're doing it of your own volition. You know you're not going to get paid, but you get paid many times over in terms of the, the satisfaction of being able to, to do some good in the world. And that drives so many physicians. How do we blend the machine of medicine with, uh, with that old-timey craft notion of the individual. I think it's important to recognize culture you learn in medical school and residency. You don't learn it in lecture hall. You don't learn it by reading it in a textbook. You learn it by observing your attending physicians, by observing your chief residents. By definition, it's 20 years out of date. Yeah. Now, if the world doesn't change very much, that's not a problem. But going from a world, I'll use one example, without cell phones into cell phones, is such a radical change. I mean, think about it. How do we select doctors from medical school? We have them take tests. Yes. And what do the tests do? They test memory of arcane facts. Yes. Now, that was important in the 20th century because if you wanted to carry all the medical information with you, you'd need a 50-pound backpack. (laughs) Today, it's called a smartphone. It's in your pocket. Why would 
anyone ever get tested on the Krebs cycle when they can look it up in 10 seconds on their phone? We should be testing them on application of that information. You should be required to bring your phone to the exams. Right, right. And you look at residencies. You know, how do we pick residents until very recently? More memorization of arcane facts. How out of date could that be? It's no longer going to be pure autonomy. The purpose is to save lives. We have to elevate prevention, elevate primary care, elevate collaboration, cooperation. These are different values. Well, let me ask, because it is intuitive that you're correct, that these, you know, culture and systemic issues are intertwined. Uh, How could it be otherwise? But is there sort of a chicken and an egg problem here? I mean, what should we do? Do we change uh, the incentives first or do we change the culture first? Do we change them together? How's that going to work? The evolution, I believe, and I'm optimistic that it could happen in the post-coronavirus era, is going to be started by a shift from fee-for-service decapitation from a system that rewards volume over a system that uh, achieves value. And the beauty of that change is that by shifting that one piece of the system, you evolve the culture. Because when you're paid a capitated fee, assuming that there's measurement of quality, measurement of service, the types of things that we already do, you start to elevate prevention. You start to elevate avoiding complications from chronic disease. You don't put the cardiologist who unblocks the coronary artery above the primary care physician because we know that adding 10 primary care physicians to a community increases longevity two and a half times adding 10 specialists. You change who you're training. You start to value things like telemedicine. Right. That's convenient for patients. You don't value... Uh, shiny robots in the operating room that have never been shown to increase outcomes that are there. Yeah. Uh, you stop doing the 30% of things that have been shown by the Mayo Clinic to add no value for patients. You start to change that and you get back to mission and purpose rather than where we are now. And I'm hopeful actually that it'll diminish burnout because I think part of why doctors feel like they're on a hamster wheel It's because the fee-for-service system creates a hamster wheel. Yes, it does. The insurance companies force down the reimbursement. The insurance companies put in place uh, bureaucratic tasks like prior authorization to try to control doctors. Doctors say, well, just trust us. They don't trust us. (laughs) All of this starts to align. Yeah. A capitated system that starts to align with the values of traditional medicine. One of the foundations of of the Groves Connection is that we're not talking about bad people, no matter which element of medicine you want to bring in, whether it's an insurance company, a pharmaceutical company, it's the incentives that drive the behavior. And the incentives are not aligned. The insurance company and the doctors in a fee-for-service system are at war. As an insurance company, I want the lowest possible price for that service you're providing. As a doctor, it's like, no, I got to be able to meet my overhead. And, you know, and, and so there's this constant battle between them. In your experience, two decades almost at uh, 
at Kaiser, which was a, a model that, frankly, uh, was looked down on when I was in training. It's like, oh, those guys are just cogs in the wheel. You know, they're never going to make it. And in fact, you took over at a time when it looked like they might not. So what changed there? What did you do to turn that around to create what really is a, a community of physicians that are supportive of each other? Uh, you know, it, it, it's a very different culture in Kaiser now than, than it was when I was in early training. You're absolutely right that there is an ongoing battle between insurance companies and doctors. But I would add, there's a battle between physicians. Because if you and I are both in the community and we're cardiologists, if the patient comes to me, you lose. If the patient goes to you, I lose. That's a crazy notion. That's a great point. How do we work across specialties? You know, How do we use telemedicine to bring the specialist into the primary care office virtually, not a every specialist coming in, but someone doing that work that day, something we did. And 40% of the problems can be solved immediately. Dermatology is a great example. You know, we take the patients that primary care, the rashes they're going to send to dermatology. These are not the ones they take care of. That's the majority. These are the tough ones that are there. We put in place a digital picture that now goes to a single dermatologist working with a bunch of primary care doctors. And in six minutes, we have a diagnosis and treatment started, not six days, six weeks, or six months. Yeah. But that kind of collaboration and cooperation is problematic. So when I did come in, as you say, we were in quite the difficult straits. Yeah. The organization was down to two days of cash. We had to borrow a day of cash to stay in business. Our quality scores, they were okay. They just weren't outstanding to the right. point you're making. The service scores were lagging, and I was selected. Now, remember, the CEO is selected by the physicians, 10,000 physicians, you know, through a board that's all physicians selected by them. So it's an entire physician process. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I don't want to say you quite campaign, but you have to have a strategic vision. They want to know what are we going to get. And I talked about this change. This evolution from a focus on, I'll call it uh, unit work, yes. down to looking at the outcomes. You know, I said, we're going to be number one in quality of the nation, which we became number one according to the NCQA. I said, yeah. we're going to lead on service, something that Kaiser had never done. Yeah. And J.D. Power and Associates ranked us number one by 20 points. As a, and we were the first, the highest, and the best in terms of physician satisfaction. This was a vision of what's possible as you start to shift from, I'll say, even a reimbursement mentality of fee-for-service, even though Kaiser Permanente is prepaid, to one that looks at the holistic part. Right, right. We call it group excellence. How do you shift the focus from the MVP to winning the World Series? That was the vision and we were, I'll say, a combination of fortunate and hopefully somewhat skilled to be able to translate theory into practice. I am sure you contributed to that in a big way because you are a force of nature. Now, now let me ask you this, though. What, how are docs compensated in Kaiser? What, what do you do to, to create you know, that group spirit, which doesn't come naturally necessarily to Americans, let alone docs? The first thing is you pay physicians by the year, and you don't even measure RVUs. You don't even think about that. 
What you're looking at is what is your accountability to the group, to the population of patients? So in primary care, it's a panel of patients. And one of the things we did is we lowered the panel size from over 2,000 down to about 16 to 1,800. Doctors are actually were seeing 15 or 16 primary care patients a day. It's impossible for others to imagine. But why was that? Because you're putting the systems in place around them to be able to let patients get care. So this is ancillary services like uh, extender? These are these nurses and advice centers. Gotcha. These are yeah. uh, opportunities to use uh, digital tools, email, okay. text. Yeah. Yeah. It's a variety of ways to better manage a population of patients. But at every point, it's not saying, how do you become less expensive? How do we do things more efficiently, more effectively, better for the patient, sooner. I mean, in medicine, there's this notion, it's good to make the patient wait. No, <laughs> take care of the problem now. Yeah. If you're going to see a specialist, why wait a week or two? How do you facilitate that to create the systems? It's a constant systems change yeah. from the traditional mindset because you have a structure I was the CEO, yet heads of each of the 19 medical centers that were physicians in chief. They had chiefs of departments there. You had a structure. And the specialty area, which we want to be looking at, is new patients. Yeah, yeah. And how do we not only share our patients, but how do we subspecialize? Why should all of us try to do exactly the same as each other? How about if each of us takes an area and becomes really, really Good at it. Yeah, you're creating a super organism, essentially. I mean, that's that's what it sounds like to me, is, is you're creating this group approach that, in a sense, becomes a super organism of physician talent, where it's applied where it's most needed, and people are doing exactly what they want to do most. The only thing that that, well, I guess it doesn't. I was going to say it leaves out the journalist, but that's your primary care physician, isn't it? They've got to know a little bit about everything. They have to know a little bit of everything, but they actually know a lot more than in most community circumstances, they're given credit for. Yes. And what I mean by that is it's hard to know about everything. And sometimes you know 90% of what you need. And all you really need from the specialist is a small piece of incremental information. Very true. So yeah. there's an example in the rashes. It's not that they didn't quite know, but they wanted to have another opinion. And with that, using digital tools, they're able to now provide excellent care. Yeah, yeah. It's the opportunity to share work together. Great example to me. Doctors close their office at five o'clock at night and then tell patients, go to the ED as though that's a good place for care. That's the last place you want to be unless you're having an emergency. It's the worst place it's to be. It's discontinuous. Yeah. You go there and they don't know anything about you. Their job is to make sure you're not dying. Then you leave and you have to go back to primary care. You know, why not have 20 of us using telemedicine be able to provide care to a population of patients. We did that in the Mid-Atlantic. We had a physician with video in the telephone center, 24 by 7. And again, 70% of the patients had their problems either solved or had them be able to be managed through their primary care physician, maybe the next morning, or whatever the doctor was back in the office, in a way that achieved better outcomes. They didn't sit in the waiting room at the ED for care. They had an answer immediately. And the ones who were sick, the, ED, the doctor in the call center would call the ED. So when the patient arrived, 
everyone was ready. They didn't have to start the process all over again of discerning, is this someone we should be working up for a heart attack or a stroke or a major problem? I can't think of a business that could function with every piece of it. Excellent people, yeah, smart people, yeah. working hard, but completely unconnected with each yeah. other in a real type of collaborative way. With the, the government and you know, paying half the bill now, are there specific policy issues that have to happen in order for this transition to occur? And, and you know, my fear there is we've got so much gridlock in the government now. Uh, now, they may be forced to simply by price, but, but how do you see this evolution occurring? What do you think the first key is to, to getting to that systemness in healthcare? I don't think the government will do it. I think the government needs to be a facilitator. And what I mean by that is, as an example in telemedicine, why should you not be able to provide care to someone in another state? If that person drives to your office, you can provide care, but you can't do it tele using telemedicine. It's ridiculous. Uh, I think the government should force the electronic health, care, health record companies to open what's called their APIs, application processing interfaces, right. so that the data can be exchanged. We can do it right now. Yeah. So there's some things they have to do to facilitate it. I think it's a, it needs to be a combination of the large businesses working together, I believe, with the doctors in the hospital in the local area. Yeah, and yeah. if they do that, everyone can win. The businesses can end up with lower cost of care. The patients can win because they'll have better outcomes and fewer complications. The physicians can win because they're gonna have more control to the point you said before. And economically, they should do just as well. And the entire organism, using your phrase, should do significantly better. I think it's going to require, though, those businesses to step forward. They've not been wanting to do that for a couple of reasons. First of all, prior to the pandemic, unemployment was 4%, so they didn't want to take a chance on not having workers. And now, for whatever reason, there's a lot of econ economists uh, speculating, well, we still have a shortage of workers, despite the fact we have higher unemployment, but they're very afraid of creating a problem with their employees. And that's why I say in this post-pandemic world, when the economic pressures, I think, are going to be greater, yeah. that the opportunity will exist for employers to say, five years from today, we're not going to purchase insurance unless there is an integrated, multi-specialty network of doctors and hospitals connected by a comprehensive electronic health record and paid on a capitated basis with a defined leadership structure. And that would now make it happen. And maybe now it'd be three years instead of five years because of the challenges that we face. But that will be the definitive piece. And I have confidence. Doctors could do this. Yeah, yeah. Right now, it's not in their interest to do it. Right now, the culture stands in the way. Yeah. And that's why, as I say, I think the first piece to move has to be a shift from fee-for-service to capitation. To, to capitation, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, and, and for, for listeners who are maybe not as familiar with that, the, all that means is that essentially there's a budget target, and that money is essentially given up front to uh, the entity, the superorganism, if you will, that's charged with the care of a population of patients. The, the backstop, as Robbie alluded to earlier, is you got to measure quality, you got to measure service, make sure all of those things are in place. But after you do that, the incentive then is to deliver the most efficient care 
possible to that population instead of in a fee-for-service system to do more to people instead of for them. Uh, Now, I've always uh, bristled a little bit uh, when I hear that phrase that just came out of my mouth, but we are human beings, right? And at the margin, if I've got a choice between getting an EKG, another EKG now, or trusting my gut, and, and you know, the, the, the literature could go either way on it, if I'm getting paid for that EKG, I, as a human being, I'm far more likely to order it. I just am. I mean, that's just human nature. And so I'm not saying that this tendency that fee-for-service has to drive further their cares because they're bad people. It is because the culture doesn't tell us that it's inappropriate to do that. In fact, that's what we're encouraged to do. Work really hard, you know, see more patients, get more exams. I mean, that the culture is driving that every step of the way and has since uh, you know, my time in medical school. I mean, that's how we all learn to do this. And until we have another model that we can have confidence in will make us happy and satisfied and we're delivering good care and it's evidence-based, without that other model to look to, it's tough for for physicians to make that transition. Kaiser created that model from the get-go. And I want to understand, what I'm trying to understand is how we get a totally fragmented market into a bunch of Kaisers around the country. Is that the way you see it? Are these independent entities that uh, uh, serve regions? I mean, how does that happen? The first thing I want listeners to understand is that capitation has to be at the delivery system level, not at the insurance level. Ah. We got this wrong in the 1990s for exactly that reason, because the insurance world can only handle it by restrictions, true, because they can't put in the efficiencies. So that's the first thing that I would say. The second thing is is that if the Kaiser Permanente model is so good, and it is, with the quality outcomes, the service outcomes, and the uh, lower cost put together, higher quality, higher service, easier access, and lower expense, how come it hasn't spread nationally? And the answer is because it was a very expensive, capital-intensive bricks and mortar. You had to have a lot of buildings. You had to have a lot of people. Uh, It was very hard to create that system de novo. So the places that it started, like California, did very, very well. But the places where they tried to start de novo, many of them failed. And that's the reality that's there. I think now we're in a different world. And I think that technology will be a major enabler. And I want to make a point, just so listeners again are not confused. Doctors are highly motivated, dedicated. They work incredibly hard. These days, many of them come out of medical school with $200,000 of debt. They're mission-driven. They're purpose-driven. Nothing that I'm talking about today is about the individual doctor. Yeah, It's about yeah, this a- culture of medicine. It's a dysfunctional system and a culture left over from the past together combining in a way. I think right now, telemedicine will be a major ability to link together doctors give you an example of that. We talked earlier about how do you have a bunch of physicians who are going to cover the emergency emergencies that come up, not the emergency room, the emergencies that come up. Right, right. The doctors can all come together and say, look, we'll share a telemedicine platform, we'll share a single database, we'll come up with the systems of communicating, 
And we all can keep our individual offices. There's no need to put us all in a single building. In fact, you don't have to be in the same location once you solve the licensing issues. Right. You can have five of them in New York and five in California and five in Detroit. And they're all 15 covering those areas. Yep. They have to understand some issues around the hospitals and the local geography. But they could do that. That possibility, I like to think of it as eliminating distance and time doesn't matter quite where you are. The time issue doesn't have to be immediate in your area. We can create these systems of care virtually. And that's what I think we now have the opportunity to do. Once you have a single payment to take care of a population of patients measured by clinical outcomes and satisfaction, right. now you start to do the things. Doctors are smart. They'll come up with the solutions to be able to do it, they're going to say, you know, why should I do two of an operation on Monday? You do two of an operation on Monday and Sam did two on an operation. I'll do the six today. You do the six tomorrow. It's so much more efficient. Right. The patient has to understand. They have to meet the doctor, but they can do that virtually. You know, I write in the book when I uh, broke my leg, I was uh, coming down the stairway on a wet day and a guy above me slipped, a big, huge guy. And he came slamming into me. Luckily, I grabbed the rail before he hit me. And I twisted and turned and broke my leg. And I shouldn't say this. Drove to the local Kaiser uh, and <laughs> <laughs> saw the doctor there. And he said to me, you know, you have a very, very complex fracture. You're a runner. You're an athlete. You're a skier. I'll do the operation for you. I knew him. He was an excellent, excellent surgeon. He said, but there's a physician 15 miles away at the next Kaiser Permanente who specializes in exactly this fracture. And I said, oh, that sounds great. You know, I'm in a lot of pain. I'm not sure I want to take an ambulance. Flight. He said, oh, no problem. We'll have you connect with him through video. And cool. I had yeah. a consultation. He had the x-rays. My orthopedist had the x-rays. The first time I met the doctor, who I'm going to trust my leg to, yeah. was 15 minutes before I went to sleep. And I was confident. You start to think of these concepts for doctors as problematic. Why is that? It violates the culture. It violates our traditional thinking as an example about mastery. You got to come into the office. I have to see you personally. I have to lay hands on you, etc. Yeah. I have to be the surgeon that does everything yes, in order yes. to have mastery. No. Why not really be good at a few things and become very sophisticated at being able to achieve the best outcomes. I understand the resistance culturally. It's what I wrote about. Yeah. I know it's not best for patients. Yes. I don't even think it's best for doctors. Yeah, I don't either, and I agree with you on that. Do, do you think that the way the world is currently sort of dividing itself up, there are these massive for-profit and not-for-profit delivery systems, historically hospital companies, but now there's ownership of urgent care and... Uh, even freestanding EDs are coming into the play now. And do you think it's these systems that can do that? Or do you see physicians aligning to create this new world? I, is it a combination of the two? How's that going to... I don't think these systems are going to do it. Uh, I think it's always easier to do more than to do better. And a lot of private equity is about how do I gain market control how do I raise the prices to generate the bottom line? Right. I don't think that's their mission. And I think we're seeing it both in the for-profit and not-for-profit world. As you look at consolidation, as you look at the entry of private equity into physician right. practices. Yeah. So, no, I don't, I don't think that that's how it's going to happen. 
I think it's going to have to come out of doctors looking at all this and saying, you know, we have had to give up so much to try to keep our head above water. Why don't we take control yeah. of this yeah. entire area? Because only doctors are capable of doing it. Yeah, yeah. That, that to me is the ultimate goal is to have physicians who understand all of this. They understand the physiology. They understand what it's like to be a physician. They understand where the culture came from. And so you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And the more physicians we have that are educated on the systems thinking that you're talking about, and even the idea, I, I, I applaud you for even raising the issue that there might be something wrong with physician culture. That's a tough message to sell to physicians, right? Before when we were talking, you said you've gotten some pushback on that. It's less than I predicted, though. You were saying around 10% you get uh, that's, that's negative about it, and, and the rest are fairly positive. Now my next question is, how long is it going to take before physicians get that message and have the skills necessary to put together the systems that you're talking about. Kubler-Ross wrote about the five stages of grief, and I think that's what's happening in medicine today. Uh, there's a sense of loss, and I want us to use the word sense of loss. Yeah. And the sense of loss, as strange as it sounds, has come from the empowerment of patients. Patients come to our office, and the paternalism of your dad's time, at least, Right. Doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. They've gone to the internet. They've researched the subject. What do we say as doctors? Oh, it's terrible information. You shouldn't pay any attention to it. Wait a second. That's the information they use in so many parts of their life. They're not patients as we've traditionally thought about it. As doctors, we hate that because this <laughs> is still the culture of the last century. They say, if I can book a trip to Europe, assuming the pandemic's over, uh, including my flight, my hotels, my dinners, at, for the convenience of my home at night, why can't I get my medical care in that particular way? Again, physicians have lots of things about, that's bad medicine. That's not the way that our patients see it. But there is this evolution that's happening. And Kubler-Ross has written about it. First is denial. You know, this is just cyclical, it'll go back, doesn't have to happen. Increasingly, doctors are no longer in denial yeah. because over half of them now work for someone else. Yep. Then you have anger. They really don't want to change. And I think that that's the 10% of people that I've spoken about. Not a single one has come up with a fact that's wrong in the book. It's all very researched and documented. Yeah. Yeah. To me, you know, you should acknowledge the shortcomings. Celebrate the wonderful side. The book celebrates that as much as it, it has does. the negative it part. It does, and that's what I want people to realize too. Is this is not doctor bashing. This is a book about culture, good and bad, and the good parts. We don't want to lose that. Yeah. I love medicine. The greatest decision I've made is becoming a physician. This is in no way doctor bashing. It's trying to open people's eyes. Yes. But the third stage is, is this negotiation that happens. As people are facing things, they say, okay, I'll do it two days a week instead of five days a week. Or they say, I'll work for a hospital. I'll join an insurance company. Right. As though that's yeah, going to yeah. get them out. No, it's just going to change the problems. <laughs> so instead of being a single person who's a victim, now they're going to be an employee, not in a physician-led multi-specialty medical group, but working for someone else who's going to tell them how to practice, what to do. Yeah. And then I'm very worried because the fourth stage is depression. And I think yeah. as physicians face the decision they've made 
they're going to be sitting in a way where they're going to say, oh my gosh, I guess it's hopeless. And that's the worst thing, and it's not hopeless that's there. And that's where this fifth stage of acceptance, acceptance doesn't mean you like it. It doesn't mean it's your first choice. It just says, yeah, we have smartphones now. Let's celebrate that. How could we use it? And to the point that you're making, physicians, they're the smartest professions. I'm sorry for other ones listening in. They're very creative. The idea of the scientific method is really what leadership is. You make a hypothesis. You do a study of the problem. You figure out the best solution. And then you implement it broadly. That's what we do in medicine, the evolution of heart surgery or interventional cardiology. Take your pick wherever it's going to be. The evolution of primary care medicine. This is what we do. And that's what I'm doing right now. As you said, it's my third career. You know, I was a surgeon, fixed kids with cleft lip and cleft palate. I had 10,000 patients. Some families operated on the parent and the child. It was remarkable. The vertical deepness of this was intense. It was wonderful. You become CEO, now I'm responsible for 10 million people. Not nearly <laughs> as personal and deep. You know, yeah, I see myself yeah, yeah, right yeah. now trying to move the healthcare of 300 million people. But if it can be successful, and I'm not going to do it myself, don't get me wrong, you and I and others talking about this, a nation coming together, maybe that will be the peace that we need for the businesses to step forward, for the physician leaders to step forward, and out of that process will come, I think, a far better system. You know, I don't know if you saw the most recent Commonwealth Fund report on quality outcomes in the United States amongst the 12 most industrialized nations. We're last. Yeah. Last in longevity, last in childhood mortality, the highest maternal mortality. Much of this is the system. Some of this is the society. But I think together we have to own it and make the changes to get better. And I don't believe that it would take physicians very long to figure out 20 ways to improve care if that was seen to be in their interest. Do, do you, uh, and I applaud, I, you know, the first step, right, is realizing you have a problem. I think this book makes it very clear that, yes, there are problems with physician culture and, and problems that must be addressed because they don't serve anybody, including physicians anymore. You mentioned 20% of the economy now is this healthcare engine, and it is the lifeblood of many communities, right? The healthcare engine. They, you know, all of this excess, you know, 30% that doesn't add anything to, to health outcomes does add something to employment in that market, right? And so one of the questions that I've been toying with recently is, okay, if we say that 30% of healthcare is wasted, Obviously, we don't want to continue doing that. If we really take a big chunk out of healthcare, how do we do that without crashing the economy? Because it is the economic engine. I mean, the, the recovery since 2008 has been built in a large part on the backs of not only the, the healthcare delivery system, but all of the startups that are out there, you know, everybody trying to get into that big business that is the healthcare industrial complex, for lack of a better term. If we actually start to really cut costs the way you and I both know that they could be, if we did it exactly right, what happens to the economy? How do we justify that? As you said, I teach both the Stanford uh, Medical School and the yeah. Stanford Graduate School of Business. So now I'll bring a business perspective into it. Trying to boost an economy through inefficiency fails. Those dollars can always be spent in ways that are going to create more production, 
more manufacturing, more ways that we can rev up a uh, geography, a town, an area, if we decide to do it. That really is the question. So to have a hospital with four patients in it, there may be a lot of people getting jobs, but that's not very efficient. Think about how much better it could be. Again, a combination of telemedicine, transportation, moving people. The army figured this out. You know, MASH you know, from, the, from the Korean War, that was the battlefield stand, and now it doesn't exist now, because what the military figured out is stabilize the soldier, and transport them to the place of maximum expertise. So you can now bring so much more expertise into the community. It's not one doctor like your dad. Yeah, yeah. You can have 20 doctors, because they don't have to serve that one community. They can serve 20 communities. You start to create systems of care. You still have the ED. You still have to have the ability to deliver a baby. You still have some things that you have to have in that local community. But if you take the percentage of people whose jobs now, I'll use your phrase, disappear, and you put them into something else, whether it's telecommunications, whether it's transportation, because you need all these pieces to support it. And gotcha. maybe you create another industry in that particular area linked together in some way with the technology that exists at the current time period. You actually get a, a lot more outcome. Yeah, Robbie, I, I want you to go back and frame it because you said something that just made it click for me because I've been thinking about this for a while and, and, and it, I, I, I can't capture exactly the way you said it. But basically what you said is, look, if you're spending money inefficiently, you're not helping your economy. Figure out how to spend it efficiently essentially is what you're saying. And there will be other jobs for those people because that same money is in the economy. It's now doing different things, better things, perhaps. Education, technology, all of those things that need to go into this uh, system to support a society, essentially. So, so we're repurposing those dollars and those jobs. It's even more than that. If you look at what's happened over the past 20 years, the average worker in the United States has seen a zero increase in spending ability. Why is that? Because the way the purchasers have been able to fund, I'll say, the inefficiencies in healthcare is by transferring a certain amount of the dollars onto the employee through deductible programs, right. particularly high deductible programs. Now imagine if instead of doing that, we had a more efficient care system and the workers of the nation had more dollars, and they spent more dollars yeah. in their local communities. Uh, they spent more dollars in other ways to uh, generate better opportunities, better education, better police. You can go on and on and build it in a way that those dollars could have created so much more value. Right, right. But it didn't. And it didn't because of the inefficiencies that are there. Every inefficient system robs a nation yeah, of yeah. Income. I love that macroeconomic view because that makes it much more clear what the problem is. It's not just that uh, these may be great economic engines, but they are not efficient economic engines and they are bound to eventually fail because of that issue. Is that 
Absolutely correct. Accurate. Okay. All right. This is so cool. I, uh, so your next book is going to be about the macroeconomics. <laughs> of, uh... <laughs> well, I don't know. It's uh, writing a book, I think, is sort of like not delivering a baby, but delivering twins or triplets or something. It's, it's a lot of work. It's painful. Yeah. Pain. Yeah. It's very painful. Yeah. But it's very rewarding, too. Well, I, you know, I am so glad that you wrote this one. And I, I could talk to you for hours. I, I literally could. And there's so much more that I want to ask. But I, I think what I want to ask at this point is, what's the primary message that you want to get out there that's, that's the most important message right now for uh, physicians and the general population to understand? The intertwining of the culture of medicine and the system of medicine that people haven't fully understood, the existence of culture, this invisible force like gravity, but it is so powerful but you know, if you're a fish and you're swimming in water, you don't notice the water. If you're a doctor practicing the physician culture, you don't realize it's the physician culture. When you step back from it, you start to see it. And the need to evolve. I think the message of the book is this is a heroic, a beautiful culture. Doctors are incredibly smart. They work incredibly hard. But the culture and the system are now working in a way that we are not achieving, I, I use the word harm, if you don't like the word harm, underperforming in ways that are harming both patients and doctors. I think the time for change is now, it's probably overdue, and much of it is being able to start to see the pieces that are there, the way that we don't value primary care, the way that we don't value prevention, Ask doctors about it. They'll have a lot of reasons why it's happening. Insurance companies, patients not doing their part, and they're right. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't shift it. I wrote the book out of love. You know, I talk in the book about the love of my mom and my dad. In my dad's eyes, my mom was perfect. There was not the slightest problem. My mom had a more nuanced view of my dad. Luckily, the shortcomings were far fewer. She could see them. It didn't change her love. She loved them just as much, but she recognized them. That's what I would ask. Let's look at the things that today in the 21st century are optimal. And COVID-19 was a great example. But let's also look at the things that we value that are left over from the last century and say, could we do a lot better? Yeah. AI is not a threat if we use it well. Creating a system of healthcare and having leadership selected has the opportunity to make life better, both for patients and physicians. I think we need to have the willingness to take on risk and the courage to move forward despite the fears and uncertainty that exist. That is an awesome way to wrap us up. Robbie, I have to tell you, this, is, uh, this has been a real treat for me. And uh, I've, I've uh, very much enjoyed the opportunity to ask you in person about all these things. And I hope that you will agree to come back for more punishment uh, sometime <laughs> in the future. But uh, congratulations on the new book. And I, I want to point out that it did take uh, courage uh, to, to start looking directly with, uh, you know, no, no whitewashing, no, uh, it's the unvarnished truth that you're going to get from this book. And I encourage especially physicians uh, to read it, listen to it. Uh, you can get it on Audible. That's, uh, that's how I got it in, in traffic on I-95. So uh, uh, just go out there and, and get this. Remember, all of the proceeds are going to go to Doctors Without Borders. Uh, so uh, with that, I'm going to say, 
Dr. Pearl, give a shameless plug for all of the stuff you do. For listeners who want more information, they can get it at my website, robertpearlmd.com, and I encourage them to read the book. Whether you like it or disagree with it, send me your thoughts, your ideas. I don't have all the answers, but together I do believe that we can make American medicine once again the best in the world. That's my commitment. That's your commitment, Robert. Together we can change medicine for the better, and I invite everyone to come along with us and help lead the journey. I'm glad to have you in the leadership role, Robbie, and uh, we'll look forward to our next conversation. With that, we are going to say goodbye. You've been listening to The Groves Connection, your connection to the inside story on healthcare, featuring in-depth interviews with those who know. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review to keep the connection going, and hit the subscribe button to be sure you never miss a beat. The Groves Connection is produced by Dr. Robert Groves. Original music, editing, and creative direction provided by Alden Groves. Production support, content guidance, courtesy of Janae Sharp and Elizabeth Barrett. Thank you for listening. The professional ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast are mine and do not reflect those of any current or past employers. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Groves Connection.